0: you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 61, uh, and this one is a couple of days later uh, than usual, and you will see when we get into the, the content of it why. Um, but this week, it is an Arnover special. Um, and I hear many of you immediately saying, what is ARNOVA? Well, ARNOVA, for those who don't know, is the Association for Research on Nonprofit Organisations and Voluntary Action, mm-hmm. hence the uh, the need for an acronym. Um, But it's one of the big, uh, if not the biggest, uh, kind of research network for people who study philanthropy and civil society, um, largely in America, but also kind of around the world. Um, And every year they hold a big US-style conference uh, in the States where they bring together people who give academic papers and uh, talk on panel sessions over three days um and uh this year i was lucky enough uh to be able to go um so i got invited to take part in a panel session um and after i did that i kind of thought in order to see whether it was worth making uh, the effort and, and the expense and everything i pitched a paper as well which got accepted um so i went along this year presented that paper took part in the panel session and also sat in Uh, and lots of other fascinating sessions and met lots of extremely nice very smart people Um, and that's all obviously lovely for me but I also thought it might be uh, useful and interesting to kind of report back on some of what I saw and heard and give some reflections uh, sort of more broadly on what it made me think about the relationship between academia and practice when it comes to philanthropy Um, so yeah the first thing to say is that um Obviously, by its nature, the the Arnover conference is is very cross disciplinary. I mean, there are people who are sort of specific. Philanthropy or non-profit scholars, but also uh, there's plenty of people who come to it from a more traditional academic discipline. Um, and even those sort of non-profit scholars tend to have a particular background um, or kind of uh, f- a framework or lens that they they bring when they're looking at these issues. So you've got people there looking at these issues from a historical angle, from political science, economics, sociology management theory law and and many others besides so it's a really interesting mix Um the other practical thing i would say immediately is it's a very big conference and there are lots of different things going on at the same time um so it's a bit like going to a festival anybody's ever been to glastonbury or or reading or one of the big u.s festivals um you can't see everything so you kind of have to navigate your own path through it and so your experience of it might be very different to somebody else's so anyone who was at arnova um this year first of all hello uh but also if what i'm saying in no way reflects your experience of it then you know apologies for that but we obviously just went along to different sessions um and you know i'd be fascinated to hear uh, any feedback from from other people who attended other things on on what they found interesting. Um, So the theme of this year's conference, which was interesting in itself, um, was, uh, let me check the exact wording, so it was, yeah, non-profits and philanthropy in a polarised world, speaking truth to power and using power to speak truth. Which I think manages to to kind of cram into to one um, headline, uh, a bunch of different things that are obviously big issues around philanthropy at the moment. And, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast for, for more than the first time will know that they're the sorts of things we talk about a lot on here. So, you know, the role of philanthropy when it comes to social and political polarisation and, you know, therefore kind of questions of the role of philanthropy in a democracy um, the idea of speaking truth to power, so the role of advocacy and campaigning and civil society voice is obviously something we've talked about a lot, um, and also just using power to speak truth, so the idea that kind of power dynamics within philanthropy and nonprofits themselves are increasingly something people are asking a lot of questions about um i guess the other things i would say up front you know which i'll probably reflect on more towards the end of the podcast are you know it was apparent to me from this that you know it continues to be the case that the study of philanthropy and non-profits definitely feels as though it's more developed in the u.s um and maybe that's just a, a matter of scale you know there are more higher education institutions there than there are pretty much anywhere else um also it might be a reflection of the history i mean there's sort of particular particular institutional history um certainly centered around foundations in the u.s and so there's a lot of study of those although you know there's a potentially interesting question about whether that has come uh, at the expense of the sort of wider study of voluntary action um in a less formal manner um which is certainly you know something that came up in conversations with a few people while I was there. Um, it's also the case I think that you know philanthropy itself has played quite a big part in that because quite there are quite a few kind of research centres dotted around the US that are funded by philanthropy or you know philanthropic families and, and have their names on them which are there for the kind of study of philanthropy itself both both in terms of how to do it better but also quite a few of them kind of engaging critically with big questions about what philanthropy is and and what it's for and that's not necessarily something that we have much of uh, at the moment in the UK i mean um Beth Breeze from the University of Kent um who's been on the podcast before and and who was on over this year and actually was in, uh, organized the session the panel session that I was involved with as you'll hear um that's sort of the the Kent um example is is one of the only ones really in the UK and there's a, there's a few others but of a kind of big US style philanthropically funded research center on philanthropy um and then the other thing that i should say up front that was uh you know really great for me apart from the content of the sessions itself and the papers was um that kind of curious modern phenomenon of meeting lots of people that i had met or you know inverted commas met on twitter and via email or even speaking to them on the podcast um but meeting them for the first time in real life and kind of putting a face to a name which you know, definitely I think continues to have an enormous amount of uh, value and I will give shout outs to some of the people um, that I met who may or may not be listening to this podcast and I'm sure they know uh, who they are. Um, okay so the, the first thing I think maybe I'll do is just talk through um, a bit of what was said in the plenary session because this was kind of a big session up front obviously that was supposed to set the tone for the whole of the rest of the conference and certainly did that um, I think and i think it was you know interesting i've not been to arnover before um and i think there's plenty of history of it engaging critically with philanthropy but i think the choice of topic for the plenary and the the people chosen to to be on the plenary reflected a a shift i think in the extent to which critical questions about philanthropy have taken center stage um so the the headline uh for, for the plenary this year was The Promises and Perils of Philanthropy in a Polarized World, which obviously kind of reflects um the overall title for for the conference. Um and the format was that René Beckers, um, the Dutch academic who's written, you know, enormous amounts about kind of philanthropy and voluntary action, was essentially comparing it, um, and then brought up three uh guests to sort of speak individually and then and then go into a um into a sort of more traditional panel discussion uh, and those guests were Kristen goss um erica kolarenis um and uh, rob Rees, who has also, uh, obviously been on the podcast before um and a lot of the discussion of this I guess for anybody who spends an enormous amount of time thinking about these things as you know frankly I do because it's my day job or if you're listening to this podcast you probably would have heard them before but they were definitely very um you know interesting topics to hear kind of discussed uh, in in this fo- in this forum um and certainly there were some interesting things said about them so you um, kind of the the whole session kicked off with Kristen Goss, who I think was there to give more of the sort of positive spin on philanthropy, um, although, you know, a pretty kind of um, uh, grounded one rather than just, uh, you know, cheerleading for it for the sake of it. Um, but she kind of started by making that positive case for philanthropy in a democracy as a counterweight to the tyranny of the majority, which is obviously something that we've talked about on the podcast quite a lot. Um, and recently in the episode on diversity and inclusion made a sort of big Uh, big central point about this Um, but she was using the example of um, gun violence in the US for instance where it it was very difficult to get movement because majority opinion was always still in favour but actually that's why philanthropy had had to play an important role in kind of supporting efforts to develop the evidence base and kind of drive the narrative about uh, the need potentially for greater regulation in order to kind of reduce problems of gun violence. Um then you had Erica Kolerainus come on and make a sort of much more critical case about philanthropy, which is, you know, something she's done uh before in her work. And I would certainly recommend um her book, The Self Help Myth, which is I'll put a link in the show notes too, but is a really interesting kind of case study of the role the Ford Foundation played in trying to address rural poverty in California. Um and she was sort of making some of that point um about the interrelationship of Uh, philanthropic funders and movements both in terms of the practicalities but also the kind of theoretical point that um, if you if what's required is fundamental structural change philanthropy might not necessarily be the best model for achieving that um her point was that philanthropic funders are as she said creatures of capitalism so they're reflective of existing structures um And if grassroots movements are there to uh, kind of challenge and potentially kind of rip up those structures, then is it possible for the two to kind of positively and meaningfully uh, interact with each other? Um, And she made, I think, particularly an interesting point that I noted down about the way in which um, organisations seeking funding, so grassroots movements, often ended up framing uh the ask that they made to grant makers um it more in terms of uh charity than justice so this is the point that kind of you end up uh framing the communities that you're representing as needy or sort of needing help rather than um positioning them as in search of justice or kind of demanding action be taken um and that in itself is is sort of in, an interesting reflection of the power dynamic in philanthropy and how it ends up sort of shaping the narrative about particular issues i thought um and then rob reeish when, when he came on i think made uh you know a couple of points um that reflect certainly the conversation i had with him on the podcast um and one of them i noted down was he was careful to make a distinction between elite philanthropy and sort of broader mass giving and even sort of philanthropy at a reasonably high level Um, and uh, particularly kind of highlighting the fact that actually, you know, one of his big concerns is that truly elite philanthropy introduces a plutocratic bias in society and sort of distorts democracy in a way that may be unhelpful. And actually, he referenced the fact that there is um, in the US and elsewhere, um, as many might know, a kind of apparent decline in levels of participation in giving, particularly at the sort of more mass market level. And this might be actually kind of exacerbating the problem because increasingly organizations are looking to a smaller number of wealthier donors to to continue their support and so if if the power and the financial clout is increasingly kind of concentrated in that smaller number of hands that might make some of these concerns about plutocratic bias uh even worse um they then kind of broke out into into the discussion and there were some I could just a couple of things i'll pick up on here i mean one was i think the the comment that probably received the um the most sort of response from the audience although it was really it was a kind of polite intake of breath rather than you know angry shouting but um Erica Colereness I think when there was a discussion about the the question of charity versus justice and she was talking about relatively positively actually about some of the work that uh, for instance the Ford Foundation is doing at the moment under Darren Walker to to kind of frame uh, a narrative about shifting from gen- generosity to justice um she she did on top of that sort of make a point that the we should continue to apply the same sort of scrutiny that it, it is being argued we should apply to philanthropy as a whole to those philanthropists or philanthropic funders who are now professing um a, an acceptance of that critique or a desire to to kind of uh, further justice through their philanthropy we shouldn't see it as an end point that they have taken on board those arguments um, because actually um, you know there's a danger that there's uh, it's easy for organizations to just sort of adopt the language because that then gets them off the hook but actually we should continue to hold them to account which I think is an absolutely fair point I think it just that It was sort of framed, uh, I think some people took the point as if it was saying, well, you just can't, you know, even the organisations that say that they want to do this, you shouldn't believe them. So I think there is a kind of point that is about scrutiny rather than cynicism. Um, But I think a few people in the room felt that that was, uh, you know, a slightly more of a kind of hard-edged point. Um, I think Rob Rees also made a point, um, you know, just uh, broadly about this issue that, any any kind of naive expectation that the people who have most benefited from existing structures are going to choose to adopt philanthropic approaches that challenge them is likely to be pretty disappointed and that seems to me fairly obvious. I mean I think there definitely are ways in which you can make philanthropy more of a tool to drive structural reform and seek justice but it is true that just assuming that that's going to happen without quite a high degree of intentionality and sort of deliberate action to shape it, um, I, I, yeah, it seems naive to me. Um, then Kristen Goss, I think, made what is an important point, and certainly one you know that I, I agree with and have made before, um, where she said, absolutely you know you can accept some of these arguments about charity versus justice and the need for structural reform but there is also an argument that going too far um down down the road of kind of placing ide- ideological purity or sort of theoretical purity uh above all else means that you you end up not actually Addressing any of the the issues that are ongoing in the here and now, so there is a need for pragmatism when you're balancing your desire for change um, uh, against what's kind of realistic. Because if you if you're if you're demanding radical systemic change, particularly in in a context like the U S, where you know historically that is not something that the country has has particularly uh, embraced, and I'm, I think the same point would be true here in the U K. Actually, you know, if you're saying that that is the only form of change that's acceptable and that incremental change or change that occurs within an existing system is somehow invalid, that's problematic because actually there is an argument that even people who agree on on some of these critiques about the need for structural reform might also argue that the way in which to do that at least in the short term is to sort of work within the system and and seek to change it rather than just just stopping and and insisting on kind of advocacy from the outside as the as the only acceptable course of action um and then i think there were a couple of other interesting things the question of participatory grant making which is something we've talked about on the podcast uh, recently Came up and whether that was a way of uh, addressing some of these challenges and shifting power within philanthropy and making it more possible to drive radical structural change so that philanthropists and funders could kind of support movements uh, more effectively. Um, And uh, Erica Kolorenis made the point um, again, which goes back to something that we talked about uh, on the podcast with Megan Ming Francis about whether actually it's not it's usually not avert attempts to stifle radical action by funders that are the problem although you, you do get that sometimes what what we need to be more careful about is that uh, on both sides either that uh, funders kind of even when well-meaning because of the the power imbalance between them and their grantees particularly by those grantees and movements can sort of shift the priorities of the movement or, or you know, dampen down their enthusiasm for more radical action and therefore kind of reduce their overall effectiveness. Or also, on the part of the movements themselves, they can kind of self-censor or make assumptions about what their funders are going to tolerate and as a result can kind of end up potentially being less effective than they otherwise would have been. Um, and then the final thing that I'll just flag up, because I think it was the one thing in the debate that kind of didn't receive a, a particularly satisfactory answer, it was a question that came from the audience, but essentially it was on whether this the current wave of critiques coming out of the US, whether they really resonated elsewhere, and particularly I think the question was asking whether they resonated in Europe, Um and I think the, I mean, the, the panelists weren't necessarily in in the best position to answer this because they were all from from the US. Um, and I think the other Europeans uh, that were there in the audience that I kind of talked to afterwards felt as though there was more to be said on on this question. And maybe we'll come back to that uh, a bit later when I talk about the panel session I was involved in. But certainly, I think there there is more to be said about the need to kind of contextualise some of these critiques, um, mainly so that we make sure. Uh, both that we don't sort of import them into other contexts wrongly or just import all elements of them without questioning the context and also so we don't lose the value of the critique because equally i wouldn't want people to say well that just comes from the us it's irrelevant over here because there are certainly uh, key elements of all of these critiques that apply across the board or apply in the uk context or the european context and we we need to make sure that we sort of take those on board um Okay, so you know that's kind of hopefully framed for you what the conference was and a bit of what the the sort of big uh, big ticket plenary uh, discussion was about. Um, in the the next uh, section, I'm just going to come on and talk a bit uh, about some of the other sessions that I went along to, just to give you a feel for some of the interesting things I came across. Um, although, obviously, as I say, I also missed plenty as well, so uh, it's definitely not going to give you a kind of full picture of everything that was there at the conference. But I will be back with that in a moment, so stay tuned for that. okay so we're back for the second section um yeah and in this section i just want to talk a little bit about some of the the other sessions i went to see kind of panel discussions or people presenting papers and just you know, give you a couple of highlights i'm not gonna be able to go into too much detail on any of them and um uh, hopefully i don't misrepresent the research findings of, of anyone uh, who I'm i'm talking about um i think it's it's important to say you know that one of the things, and this will come up again I'm sure in the reflections that um that I was sort of reminded about uh was that um some a lot of this academic work is is extremely interesting um and it does have relevance to practice but i think in in very few cases is it um is it likely that a practitioner could kind of wander around a conference like this? dip into a session and just find something that immediately kind of related to their day job without without quite a lot of kind of additional... Contextualization and translation in between so you know I'm obviously at the sort of pretty theoretical end of the practitioner spectrum and even I found that with quite a lot of this work I found it interesting but I had to think through you know how it could be turned into something that I could then make relevant to sort of policy discussions or kind of practice discussions but that being said there was loads of stuff I think that that was really interesting um, so one of the f- first ones, taking these in no particular order. So there was an interesting session I went to on the question of whether uh, trust uh, has a bearing on, on charitable giving, which is, you know, very much like one of the most, um, the closest to a, to a kind of live conversation in in the sector uh, in terms of sessions I went to, because there's obviously a lot of discussion about that in the uk and has been for a number of years and particularly in the context of the apparent decline in charitable giving um people seeking to understand what the underlying causes of that are and you know declines in public trust are often put forward as as one possible explanatory factor um and so there was an interesting paper particularly here by cassandra chapman um, from the university of queensland um and she um well she gave a couple of papers um in this session and also um, another paper in a session the following day, which I wasn't able to go to, but um, she very kindly sent me a copy of it after the event and I had a look at it. So I'll just flag up what that one said as well. Um, But in this, she'd done um, a lot of uh, work trying to to kind of get at a couple of key points about the relationship between trust and charitable giving and see what evidence there was uh, for them. Um, and just in terms of interesting headline findings, one was they found in this research that actually, despite a lot of the narrative about the decline in public trust in charities, there's when you look globally, there is actually no significant global decline in trust in charities specifically. And a lot of this is based on analysis of the underlying data for the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is often taken as the sort of main source for these things. There are definitely overall declines in institutional trust or in kind of levels of public trust but when you look specifically at charities and non-profits that doesn't hold true there are there are definite variations between different countries in terms of the sort of base level of trust in charities and that's interesting but when you look over time within those countries none of them show a marked decline so so that's the kind of the first thing um uh, the second thing was that they established by looking at some of this data that there definitely is a correlation between levels of trust and levels of giving, um, which, you know, you might say, well, duh. But a part of the point of academic work is to to kind of actually test things that people just assume. And this is certainly one of those things that is often just assumed when you're talking in sort of policy circles or in practice circles. So it's interesting to see see it being backed up that being said it's it's a bit more complex than that because the the correlation is is only a fairly uh small one and there is a significant difference between the correlation between overall levels of public trust, which is really pretty small, uh, and charitable giving, so the the correlation there is very weak. There is a slightly stronger correlation between specific levels of trust in, in the charity sector and levels of giving, although still not massive. And then there is a larger correlation between Levels of trust in a specific organization and people's willingness to donate to that organization, which is sort of as you might expect, and goes to this point that we've discussed on the podcast, um, for instance, with Dan Flusky a while back, that people can at one and the same time say that they um, don't really trust charities as a whole, but actually, when talk when they're talking or asked about the charities that they already support, they have very positive views of them and say that they trust them. So people can hold a sort of cognitive dissonance about overall levels of trust and specific trust when it comes to the organizations that that they have a relationship with mm-hmm. um the another thing that was, came out of this paper was that as yet nobody has established any sort of causal link between trust and levels of giving and i think that that rings true to me i mean i think when we have been uh, looking at, at CAF and other people have been looking at trust as one potential explanatory factor for the decline in giving, for instance, I think we've had to be careful to say, you know, there's no, it certainly isn't the only factor, and it's not even clear at the moment whether it is a causal relationship or or merely correlation. And so there is, there's definitely an area of research there where there's more to be done to establish whether there's a causal link. Um, And then the other interesting paper that that I read after the event but didn't go to was looking specifically at the impact of scandals on charities and non-profit organizations and around things like Oxfam and safeguarding. And what that paper found um, is that compared to organizations from other sectors, non-profits get more harshly penalized in terms of public opinion and and kind of public trust when it comes to those sorts of scandals than organizations from other sectors, which again is this sort of thing that i'm sure charities would feel you know uh, intuitively to be right, but it is interesting to see it kind of backed up by academic research um, okay, so just in a couple of the other papers that I saw, there were some other interesting ones. I went along to a session where Ellie Munro from the University of Birmingham um was giving a paper on some of the work that she'd uh she's been doing looking at the history of NCBO and and particularly its kind of relationship with government uh, and this was interestingly kind of um uh, contrasted with another piece of um of research from the US um from some people at uh the uh, the Lily School, including Dana Dewan, who I know listens to the podcast because she very kindly came over and said that she listens to the podcast. So hello, Dana, if you're listening to this. Um, and uh, she and, and a colleague had done some work looking at the role of independent sector, which is a sort of not quite equivalent body of the NCBO in the US, but is a kind of uh, representative body for nonprofits. Um, and this session was uh, well to me really interesting because I'm sort of interested in these issues but it certainly raised some interesting questions about what the role of um, representative bodies in the charity world is in terms of sort of shaping the narrative about the sector and and how it uh, interacts with government and also what its kind of role is in society Um, and also what we mean when we say independence because a lot of this was um, framed in terms of these organizations having independence of one sort or another but there were some interesting questions about whether financial independence is the same thing as sort of independence of voice um, and whether actually sometimes these two things are intention because actually financial independence potentially drives you towards thinking of things like um, pr- working to provide contracts um, for government or to develop more sort of trading income or sort of business-like approaches. And then those actually potentially can undermine your ability to advocate because you are more beholden uh, to sort of public sector funders or corporates and so less able to to challenge them or to challenge their policy positions Um so I thought that was that was a really interesting session uh, and actually Ellie was involved again in another session that I went along to because I love history of philanthropy um, where she was there with Claire Dunning and Kirk Leach and Ben Soskis who's also a previous uh, podcast interviewee um, and we'll come up again uh, in a moment um, but that was a really interesting one so looking at um, it was kind of about how you historicise um, the study of philanthropy and particularly, you know, it was framed around this sort of how do you do that at micro, meso and, and macro level. Um, although as ever, these things, the framing sort of, you know, <laughs> was was just a way of framing it. So actually everybody kind of had interesting work of their own. Um, I'd particularly flag up in that one Claire Dunning's uh, paper, um, just because I, I found the particular example that she used fascinating and it spoke to a lot of stuff that um, I'm really interested in. Um, but she has a paper that I think is forthcoming, although I can put some links, I think, to um, bits where she uh, has already kind of highlighted some of the content of that work. But this is the case um, of a um, a funder in, in Boston. So he was a, a millionaire called Ralph Hoagland. Um, and he became a millionaire through founding a thing called Consumer Value Store, or CVS, which is a sort of um, equivalent of, I'm not quite sure what it would be over in, in UK Poundland, possibly slightly more market than that, but essentially a kind of, um, you know, a, a discount store uh, chain. Um, so he became very rich, but then he decided to use some of that money um, to support fairly radical um, uh, movement for... Um, uh kind of black rights and so following on from the the civil rights movement it's the the united black front of boston or black united front of boston i think um they they kind of presented the city with a a list of demands uh, about kind of renaming public schools changes in municipal policy that sort of thing um and it was seen as a reasonably aggressive reproach and even the NAACP, the sort of main um, advocacy body for, for civil rights in the US, distanced themselves from it. But but bizarrely or fascinatingly, Hoagland kind of uh, recruited a, a donor circle from among the other rich people he knew and convinced them to, to give some money um and they gave this money through a thing called the uh, the fund for urban negro development or fund as it as its acronym ran where they they then passed money that was and it, it, a lot of what they said was about how there was no strings attached and they were kind of doing this because the, these people you know knew best for themselves what was required to kind of move the the dial on civil rights and for black people in boston and so they would just you know hand over the money to them um And so they were just providing them res with resources, which is really interesting in terms of the framing and some of the questions about funders and movements these days um But the interesting thing in in claire 's work is that she um sort of looked at some archival materials that have fairly recently come to life and actually um found that, that you know this picture is a lot more complex than you might imagine and actually a lot of those funders you know continue to exert a reasonable amount of power and and in terms of how the money was spent and some of the demands they made about accountability and these sorts of things mean that 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 kind of utopian picture that they presented of no strings attached funding is potentially not quite as as simple as or straightforward as it's first presented um so i definitely recommend checking out that paper um a couple of other interesting ones i saw so I went to a more economics-focused uh, session on gender, uh, and there was particularly a paper by Mark or Tony Wilhelm from the Lilly School of Philanthropy, um, and he was uh, presenting some work that they had done, a sort of economic experiment, I think, with Just Giving in the UK but where they looked at whether there were gender differences when it comes to people setting goals in terms of fundraising. And I'm hoping that I'm explaining this right, because often explaining kind of economic experiments and their framing is, is relatively difficult. You've got to make sure you get it right. But essentially, there turned out to be a difference where... Uh, between men and women in terms of how ambitious the goals they set were so for both cases setting goals was better than not setting goals so both women and men who sort of set fundraising goals did more fundraising but but interestingly women who set more ambitious goals ended up fundraising less overall than those who set less ambitious goals, whereas for men, those who set more ambitious goals ended up fundraising more. So actually there's something sort of interesting about the gender difference that comes potentially with sort of confidence or, or whatever it is, braggadocio uh, of kind of setting yourself a bigger goal, and that drives you to do more, whereas actually uh, on the female side it seems as though actually setting those bigger goals can become a burden that then reduces overall fundraising. So that was really interesting. Um, Another session I went to uh, John Dean from Sheffield Hallam University, um, so hello John as well, um, who uh, did a paper on uh, kind of social media use by young people and particularly the idea of of humble brags, so you know where people kind of... um, Sound as if they're they're talking about something in a, in a reasonably kind of uh, egoless way, but actually it's designed as a way of uh, kind of bigging themselves up or making themselves look like a better person. And he'd been kind of uh, presented some research looking at the role of uh, representations of charitable giving in this. You know the kind of he um, gives you the example you know people going oh i'm so tired because you know i was up all night doing this fundraising event or whatever or saying like god i just can't believe i've got to count up all these donations that i've managed to raise through you know for for this cancer research uh charity or whatever um and so they'd done some work kind of looking at both at kind of how young people use those but also what the responses of some of their peer groups were to them um and as you might expect you know it's relatively complex picture but actually you know there's a reasonable amount of sort of cynicism and negativity towards this sort of thing because people I think are kind of aware of the phenomenon of the humble brag and so they kind of see through this and it's interesting to think what you know what sort of uh, longer-term impact that has on people's perception of charitable giving as a virtue and whether it is actually kind of uh, a sign of virtue. The other thing I'll flag up um, because I'm aware this is already running relatively long and I've got another section I want to go through and I thought this would be quite a short episode but it turns out when I start talking these days I don't stop. Um, just a couple of things that I was involved with. So first of all you know a, a shameless plug for, for my own paper that I presented. Um has to be said to a relatively small room because it was on at a time when there were a lot of other sessions on but um nobody else needs to know that all i have just told everybody on a podcast um but uh so the paper is um it's called networking opportunities uh rediscovering decentralized governance in philanthropy and civil society question mark um and it's basically looking at this question of whether new affordances of technology are enabling us to do things in kind of genuinely new ways through sort of disintermediating and decentralising, so kind of creating platforms or using uh, sort of non-hierarchical models of government or sort of new network social movements. Um, whether that's genuinely new or whether we're actually kind of in danger of rediscovering a whole host of old problems that we've always known about with decentralized approaches Um, so that paper will be coming out fairly shortly so you'll be able to read it but um, you know I hope people find it interesting I mean essentially it's, it's an attempt to kind of put some of the discussion at the moment about social movements and platforms and things in a bit of wider context both within within the world of philanthropy and charity itself so what i do in the paper is kind of look at uh, the historical development of centralization and sort of why it is that uh, philanthropy has become centralized in various different ways but also look at some of the wider context around narratives of decentralization elsewhere in kind of politics and economics um, and sort of what those tell you about the appeal of decentralization but also some of its limits and then try to see whether the discussion within civil society um and the particularly around the role of technology whether it genuinely kind of overcomes some of those limitations or whether it's just in danger of kind of rediscovering those problems or indeed finding new problems um, and then the other thing that i was involved in was a colloquium uh, panel so here we were discussing i think opportunities and challenges in current critiques of philanthropy um so it kind of you know i think neatly bookended the plenary in lots of ways um And it was good. We had a good crowd for it. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, So Beth Breeze, as I said, from the University of Kent, organised this one. uh, And I got a chance to present. uh, And I was on a panel with Michael Moody from Grand Valley State University uh, and Ben Soskis from the Urban Institute and editor of Histville, who has been on the podcast before. Um, And, yeah, we had a a good discussion, I think, about, um, I mean, the kind of central core message from all of us, I think, consistent across, across the whole thing was... a a plea for nuance and kind of engagement with complexity in discussions of philanthropy um and sort of warning against the danger of um allowing entertaining polemic to to kind of take center stage because actually a lot of the conversations about philanthropy reflect the complexities of People's individual motivation, motivations, cultural context, long historical context, but also that sort of that gap between understanding the philanthropy at an individual level and at a at a systems level, and kind of what the trade offs are potentially between those two. Um, all things that kind of came up in in the conversation, and also things like um, people ask questions about you know how we actually define philanthropy um as a sort of starting point and whether actually that needed to to change to reflect the fact that there are increasingly sort of different ways for people to do good and what impact that might have on some of these discussions um but it was yeah it was a really interesting conversation um i think sadly we'll remain forever in that that room because i'm not sure it got recorded but just trust me when i say it was you know one of the great live performances of all time so for the people who were there i'm sure they'll all go away and form a band so it'll be a bit like that that uh, legendary sex pistols gig in manchester um uh, okay, so that's uh, kind of I think enough of a run through of some of the different sessions I was involved in and went to, and hopefully that's sort of you know an interesting whistle stop tour for people. I should say again, you know, there were so many other sessions listed in uh, in the conference program that I couldn't get to because I was either going to something else or involved in another session at the same time, um, and uh, I heard reports from other people of many other interesting sessions that they had attended um so you know certainly i would say i think you can access the program online so if you've got an idle moment do go and kind of have a scroll through it and see if any grab your fancy because i'm sure then you can kind of look up the work of the the academics involved and kind of find out for yourself what it was that they're talking about um okay well in the final section i'm just going to come back quickly and give hopefully a few fairly brief reflections overall on kind of what i took out of arnova so stay tuned for that Okay. So we're back for the final section and I promise I genuinely will try and keep this one relatively brief because I thought this was going to be, you know, quite a short episode and instead I've managed to waffle on for the usual length of time. Um but basically I mean just I just wanted to give a few kind of overall thoughts on what I took away from from over as I kind of Got over my jet lag and tried to process what was a pretty intense couple of days, although you know, as I said before extremely enjoyable and I'm very you know grateful to have been able to go um I think one thing I've mentioned already that I think you know is worth mentioning again is is the sort of distinction i think between what is going on uh between the u s and and elsewhere I think both in terms of the kind of content of the debate, so I think Particularly around things like some of the critical debates at the moment, there are definitely core elements of it that apply across the board. So something like the question of you know balancing the need for charity against the desire for justice, for instance, is as old as the hills and applies everywhere. But there are other things that are specific to the U.S. context. For instance, around the way their tax system works, or the the way that the political system works, and therefore the sort of influence that philanthropy has on on politics in that country and i think we just need to bear some of these in mind um when we are taking those criticism or critiques on board and assessing them um and also i think you know i'd make a plea that there's probably a lot more room there for non-us led uh kind of thinking and writing about philanthropy that engages with some of these big picture issues so that we kind of have those perspectives from elsewhere on on the same kind of debates Um, and I say that obviously in a mildly self-interested way because that's part of what I do as my day job but also I'd be delighted if lots of other people did it as well. Um, I guess the other sort of big thing that I wanted to flag up is just that it kind of reminded me of a couple of things about the nature of the relationship between academia and practice when it comes to philanthropy. So one is you know firstly, I would say I was there at the conference, I was delighted to be there, but I was in a pretty small minority as a practitioner. I mean, it was not a conference aimed at practitioners, so that is understandable, but I still feel like there are far more people required to fill that gap between academia and practice because I think part of the frustration that you know academics feel with practitioners in this area, and also conversely that practitioners feel with with academics and academia, is that the they're they're not necessarily their priorities are not aligned and the work is not necessarily framed in the right way without some you know reasonable amount of translation often and so direct engagement doesn't always really work I think the expectation that most people working in charities or non profits would sort of sit down and read a load of journal papers I mean apart from practical issues of things like access and paywalls it would be difficult in a lot of cases for them to immediately see the relevance of it to their own work. Often there is relevance, but it has to be sort of set in in wider context and the way that it's framed or explained needs to be changed. Now, there's no reason that academics themselves can't do that, and many of them are very good at it and good at engaging with practice and practitioners and publicising their work, but not all of them are. And I think many of them would sort of hold their hands up to that. But then it's not necessarily always their job to do it. I mean, you know, the primary... Uh, responsibility of the academics is to, to kind of meet standards of academic rigor and to, to meet the requirements of their own field in terms of the research questions they're addressing and the sorts of outputs they that they're coming up with and in some cases um, those academics are able to kind of combine that with a more uh, populist or popularizing approach or to engage with practitioners and are comfortable doing that but in other cases they are more focused on The academic side of things and that's that's fine which is why i say that there is you know a job to be done for people like me i would assume but also others to kind of engage more in that middle ground between academia and practice and to try and develop the links between them um I think there are sort of practical things in there as well as just the the content and, and, and the language and the sort of lack of shared forums around things like time scales. I mean, I know one of the things whenever I interact with academics that, that constantly takes me by surprise is, you know, we're often in practice talking about, timescales of you know weeks and months whereas in academia particularly when you're talking about things like peer-reviewed journals you're talking about years and I think that can be frustrating from the point of view of a practitioner when you want to kind of get on with things now um but equally i think from the point of view of an academic sometimes you know a lack of understanding on the other side um might be annoying too Um, although that being said a lot of academics i know moan about about academic time scales so i'm sure they probably sympathize um i think it was really interesting for me going to the the, um the conference to be reminded what academic rigor in research is is actually all about because i think while i was there you know talking about to people about things uh, in sessions i was involved with and asking questions um as a sort of you know interested and relatively well read practitioner who is not an academic you know i was able certainly to engage with what they were doing and to ask questions but i was definitely aware at times of how different it is to many of the examples or where I've been involved in sort of other discussion forums within the sector where you get a lot more leeway to sort of get away with making, you know, slightly unfounded claims or resting on kind of uh hyperbole or rhetorical devices. Whereas one of the one of the good things I think about engaging with academia is being pulled up on that a bit more and being reminded about the need to actually back up what you're saying. Properly with some evidence, so you know i I took that as a timely lesson for myself, and hopefully one well, that I'll continue to kind of feed into to my work um and I think the other thing that I would say is that this is an interesting conference because um it's obviously about philanthropy and civil society, so by its nature it is kind of cross disciplinary but even within that i um I think that it sort of was a reminder that. There are still you know, lots of um ways in which the study of philanthropy suffers from being cross-disciplinary because so much of academic work is still structured in kind of traditional subject silos. So actually, you know, writing papers or doing research on philanthropy that brings in elements of history or law or public policy or um you know psychology or all these things is is really interesting and to me it's one of the things that, that makes philanthropy as a subject of study interesting and keeps me going in, in the area. The problem is as an academic researcher I think that can often be very difficult because your work then starts to sort of fall between the gaps of different academic um, areas so it's sort of unclear anymore what you're doing um, and it's sort of fine I guess if you have a, a day job as a historian or an economist or something like that and you're then able to Bring other perspectives into your work as a as a um, as, as a student of philanthropy. But also I think in some cases I, I know people were saying that, and that can be kind of, you know, limiting. Um and particularly I think in with the requirements uh, of academia as opposed to somebody like me who is sort of doing more, you know, synthesis or translation work. The the requirement to kind of know an entire body of literature about a, a subject when in order to, to kind of engage on that subject can be a limiting factor because um, there's a slight sense of you know, you kind of ha- have to academically stay in your lane a little bit more. Whereas, you know, somebody like me, a dilettante, is free to just kind of roam around all over the place and say whatever they want. And as long as they can kind of back it up based on the work of other academics who do stick within their subject field. Um, but I think, you know, having more freedom for the academics themselves to be able to work in a cross-disciplinary way would be really healthy. Because, you know, I'm aware through engaging with people at Arnova over and elsewhere that there are some really, really bright people who are, you know, very kind of dedicated to this work and have all sorts of interesting thoughts about it and sometimes just lack an outlet in their academic work to kind of bring that stuff to the fore and that seems like a shame to me okay well i think that brings us to a close much longer than uh than i uh anticipated um i hope that was interesting for everybody i know it's a bit different to to the normal episode and we didn't have a kind of particular theme um or you know i wasn't interviewing anybody but i hope you know um, I hope that was kind of interesting. I, I thought it was uh, would be worth kind of uh, talking about the the conference because I I felt very fortunate to be able to go and I really enjoyed it. But I I didn't want it just to be something that kind of stayed in the room. And given that my key points, I think at the end of this is about the ongoing need to ensure that there are links between um academia and practice around philanthropy and civil society you know i thought one well, of the very least i could do was tell as many other people as possible about the conference and what i found uh from going there you know and hopefully if that means that i can act as sort of one conduit between academia and practice then so much the better and if that encourages other people on both sides to try and do it a bit more brilliant um Anyway, it just remains to say thanks for listening. Um if you're interested in the sorts of stuff that I was talking about there, you know, definitely check out uh, our our own CAF work at the giving thought pages at Cafonline.org. Um, or follow me on Twitter where I chat about this kind of stuff endlessly at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, follow me also on Twitter at Philiteracy um, where I talk more about sort of uh, bits of academic work about philanthropy and sort of history and political science and philosophy around philanthropy. So check that one out. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people we could interview, uh, drop me a line at cafonline.org. At other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, uh, give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, I'm sure that all helps. And other than that, I'll see you next time. Bye! <laughs>